Jamie and Travis, Jamie and Travis, Jamie and Travis present. What are you thinking about? Uh, Your I wish car? I want them to fix my car. Oh, there it is. The remote start in your car. My convenience. I need them to fix the convenience in my car. <laughs> is this your regular driver, or is this the... No, my regular driver. The uh, yeah. the truck is no more, and I got a Subaru, because, oh. you know... That's what people do here. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll justify it a thousand ways. Yeah. Everybody has them. Why does everybody have one of these? Oh, it's because it's awesome. And, yeah, I know. Do you have a Subaru? No, but I've been engaged in an argument with several people about Subarus in the past two weeks. And I got on the Subaru, um, you know, I... Prepare for your fifth argument of the week. Yeah, no, I love everything about them, and I want to love them, except it's... You have an essential flaw, and so I have no ground to stand on as someone who loves Volkswagens. Yes. Let's just put that out oh, there. Oh, I'm in the same boat. Yes. But at least everyone would point and laugh, and I'd point and laugh along with them and, yes. and say, I know, but people um, swear by Subarus, but when you know you're going to have to have probably head gasket a work done. A $2,500 head gasket. Yeah. And, and it's they seem to be designed that way these days. Isn't that, it is the thing, yeah. Uh, it's a little a, hard to swallow. Shannon, who I bought the car from, Shannon Flanagan, was in the middle of, because I was saying those that to him, and I'm like, well, it's already got 90,000 miles on it, so I'm like 60,000 miles away from having to do the work on this. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, okay, Nissan has this, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Mazda has this, and blah, 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 and I was like, okay, so what are you, what are you actually telling me right now? He's like, 150,000 miles, you're going to do something, yeah. sorry, and I was like, ah. Oh. Just wanna, where's where's my where's the Volvo that I can drive to four hundred thousand miles? Right. Where's the where's the car that I can do that? But you can't. There's I'd buy any car system. from Shannon too. He's such a nice. He's so nice. Yeah. We're all gonna eventually own him. cars from him. Yeah. You're welcome, Shannon. Jesus. Jesus. Can't believe you. What kind of car are you driving now? <laughs> I have two Volkswagen camper vans. <laughs> yes. Oh wow, you two. Jeez. Now I know why you're on the podcast. Yeah. No, it's it's a problem. I didn't even read the book. Wait, I just want to talk about vans. Does she know? <laughs> does she know about your your camper van thing? Which what does she you know mean? that you like Volkswagen? The legacy, too? the history. Yes, we have we have we have bonded over this conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I do not have a, an actual camper. I do not have a Westie right now. But I own oh. half. I own half of a Westie with my dad. What is the distinct? What's the oh. other one called? Just a wagon? You call them vanigans? It's a vanigan. Yes. Yes. And then Westphalia has the pop-up. Is that the difference? Yes. Yes. And even within that, there's the full camper. So one of mine is a Westphalia full camper. Yeah. So Westphalia is the outfitter who did the aftermarket, you know, retrofitting of the pop tops and the kitchens and all the camping gear. So it's a Volkswagen Vanagon that has been outfitted by Westphalia. And my old one is the full camper, but this, this rubs people, Volkswagen people the wrong way. I also have a Eurovan. Um, so I'm a trader because I have an older one and the, the, a Eurovan, those streams usually don't cross um but the eurovan disgusting is a westphalia too because it's been outfitted with a pop top but it's a weekender wait a second meaning it doesn't have the kitchen no kitchen westphalia is not a volkswagen thing they're a a separate separate company company? so there's winnebago westphalias too there's eurovan um winnebago's um yeah they're that they're the aftermarket outfitter it's blowing my mind I thought Westphalia was just a model of a Volkswagen. Now, I, the history that I haven't never do- dove into, I would assume 
that Westphalia is uh, like a uh, some sort of tax sheltered business that Volkswagen owns. Yeah. Like I think I think because I don't know of any other Westphalia outfitted vehicles. Yeah, Damon Rousteau. I think he would know that. He would, and I don't want to ask him. Yeah. Yeah. I could watch the movie, I guess. I don't think it says. <laughs> no, it's not in the movie. It's not, not all Volkswagen movie. full campers are Westphalias. So when you see one of the random pop tops that goes straight up, yeah, um, I think those were there were certain stretches of time where they used even a secondary, like yeah. not just Westphalia, but some of them went to another company, and so those are more rare. And oh, and more because it's crazy how much these things are worth. The balloon, yeah. The balloon is the balloon will never pop. Apparently, no. We, That's insane. I know because now they're dragging them out of fields. Yeah. Shells out of fields and selling fix. them for forty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, Just sure. like completely rebuilding them. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes it not as fun to own because now I worry about mine. The first time so I had one, yeah. when they were cheap things that you just sort of um, beaters that you picked up, I yeah. I had more fun and I drove it everywhere. And now I'm like, oh, let's not, you know, yeah, damage more, the vehicle. I was more apt to get rid of it and get another one, but now it's like yeah. it's very sacred. And now we have to debate whether or not it stays in our house or not. Oh, yeah. are you considering getting rid of it? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's scheduled nice. to have its windows tinted next week. So oh. it's not. All of them? Yeah. Front ones too? Uh, legal front. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Nice. Oh, I'm all legal. No. <laughs> yeah. Because Vanigan owners are stoners. Yeah, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay. We are here with Melissa Stevenson. Uh author of Driven, A White Knuckled Ride to Heartbreak and Back. This is a beautiful book. It's a memoir. I'll be totally honest. Uh, when Travis said that we were going to have a writer on who wrote a memoir, I I was like, okay, this might, <laughs> don't. this might be, I don't know. <laughs> and then on page five, I read this paragraph and I was in. You were describing your grandmother. When she was 14, getting sent home from school for wearing a too-short go-go dress was my mother's biggest problem until the day a semi-truck driver lost consciousness and annihilated her father. He'd been assisting an elderly woman whose car stranded her on I-65, the main artery that connects Indy and Chicago. He was killed instantly, honorably, in the line of duty, reduced to a stain on the highway despite his well-known charm and integrity. He left behind my grandmother and the four children who called her Betty behind her back and mother to her face. And I was like, oh, okay, never mind. She can write. <laughs> this is fucking awesome. Uh, and it is. I mean, you are. I'm, you. I am admittedly halfway through. Yeah. That's so I said this to you when you came in, but if I ask you a question that is answered in the second half of your book, please forgive me. <laughs> we'll have a no spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's really, it's really awesome. And I know I just kind of stole your thunder by reading something, but the second I read that again on page five, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm, this is, this is, you, you tell a huge story in three sentences basically with that, which is just the mark of a pro. Um, so well done. It's amazing. And I was wondering if you would be willing to read us a section that you like to read, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, this little section um, doesn't need much introduction, I don't think. This is just a couple pages here, maybe about a quarter of the way into the book. And um, I think it'll just tell you a lot about uh, my family dynamic, growing up in a nuclear family in the Midwest, and our sort of um, economic status, all of that. It gives you a good sense of the early part of the book. 
At the dinner table on a rare evening when my father came home from work on time to join us, he praised Matthew, that's my brother, for pulling a D up to a C, which is probably an oversight on my brother's part. He could ace tests without studying, so failure took a real effort. My father went on about how good it was to see the old grades coming up. Our mo mother nodded emphatically, reinforcing Dad's words with her listener noises. Matthew stared at them like they were stupid, and my face turned pink over my plate of microwaved peas and chicken. I earned all A's, all the time. I worked hard for them, and when I hit a mental roadblock, I collapsed into hot tears, so disgusted with myself that I couldn't lip-sync a single song until I'd mastered fractions or the art of the book report. Our parents marveled at how they brought such different children into the world, and Dad, who does not believe in coincidence, would later suggest that our differences were cosmically ordained for our spiritual growth. Whether our natures were so disparate by luck or by design, there is no doubt that Matthew was my perfect foil. He did whatever he wanted, and everyone loved him, while I ran my tires bare trying to do everything right, a single-mindedness that put a serious dent in my likability. That night after dinner, I couldn't let my brother see go. I put on my point shoes and stalked my father as he snacked on chips and watched college basketball in the breakfast nook. I tried to engage him by talking about my straight A's, fishing for praise in still waters as my feet cycled through a nervous series of releves and rond When I couldn't get him to take his eyes off the screen for fear of missing one of Steve Alford's famous three-pointers or Bobby Knight throwing a folding chair, I spouted out this. What if I started getting F's? I could do it, you know. I could just fail. Dad looked at me, irritated, but I wouldn't stop. Sometimes I feel like Matthew could take a dump on a paper plate and you'd all just laugh, but I could become the first female president and you wouldn't even care. Dad sighed, catching my drift. You're two different kids, miss. You have different strengths, different challenges. The way he shrugged off my concern enraged me. You, I said, you don't know anything about discipline. Dad slapped a hand down hard on the table. I don't know anything about discipline? He shot me a look of disgust I'd not seen from him before, and haven't since. Then he got up and walked away. That line I'd been probing, I found its electric boundary. Our father was a gentle mystic who loved fast cars, Tom Waits, home improvements, Carl Jung, and Jesus. But he was still our patriarch, a role that he honored by mortgaging his happiness for our own. His compulsive work ethic kept the fridge stocked, the cars running, and our house comfy. Dad had grown up in a home where discipline meant physical correction. Discipline had not made him happy, and he would not inflict such rigid paradigms on his children. He seemed to know already that I would turn out more or less fine, in the same way he intuited that slapping rules and boundaries on his son would only strain their connection. For me to question our father like that when he had sacrificed to provide me with a level of privilege unknown to him as a child was a disgrace. Oddly satisfied, I went back to performing my role as full-time pursuer of perfection, shuttled to every practice in the Valari, my chariot, white knight, old faithful, harbor of ballet shoes, leotards, sheet music, Judy Bloom books, figure skates, and my larger-than-life daydreams of finding a way beyond state lines for good. Thank awesome. you. Yeah. Um, so this book is, I mean, it is a story of your life in a lot of ways. I mean, and the thing that is, is clever about it, I think, makes it so 
good is it's it's more specifically a story about your relationship with your brother mm-hmm. uh, told sort of via car ownership right <laughs> what what cars you guys had at, yes. at what times um, and can you can you just talk a little bit about how you got this idea and when you started and what what the process was like yeah you know it's interesting to me um, I love the section that you chose to read um, about my grandfather's death before I was born. And actually, the way I started writing this book, I had young children, I had stepped away from writing, I was working as a full-time breadwinner, I had no writing time. And um, I was having my first, like, crown put in. And I had it was the first time I had dental work done, and they gave me nitrous. And in that nitrous haze, I decided um, that I would write a book of weird family stories and I would of growing up in Indiana and I would call it weird shit and then I would profess my love (laughs) to the female dentist working on my mouth as soon as I could talk again (laughs) and one of those ideas stuck and I started writing without knowing I hadn't written memoir before I'd written poetry and fiction I started writing these little like flash nonfiction pieces and that paragraph is um an adapted version of the very first piece I wrote way back in like 2008 or 2009 and it was called Peck and it was about this rooster that my mother was given um, after her father died but some of the language is exactly the same Um, so I wrote all these little pieces and after a while you know uh, I had 100 150 pages of these tiny little compressed scenes or moments and um, I realized I had a book I needed some way to string them together and I think when you work creatively Sometimes the hardest place to hang in there is when you're on the plateau, you know, yeah. when, when you're just slogging through mud. But that's usually what happens right before there. You, you have to be on the plateau before you make some kind of leap. Right. And so I was just writing, 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 working hard, um, kind of getting nowhere. And I was revising one of the little shorts, which was about the Valari, which is um, a moment in the book when we buy our first new car off the lot. And suddenly, dang, I had the idea, and I took out a piece of paper and started to write down all the different cars we'd grown up with. And then I was like, oh, wait, oh, wait, it's about my brother and his death. And when he dies, I inherit his car. And then my car breaks down, and I think I'm onto something here. And only once I found the cars in that structure could I kind of tell that larger story of his death. Whenever I tried to write straight to that, it was just too enormous. But if I could focus specifically on the cars the bigger story kind of came in naturally. And what, I mean, I imagine that something like that uh, required, I mean, I'm sure you remembered most of the cars, but I'm also sure you had to do some some research. Oh, yeah. And what what was that process like to, you know, call family members, I assume, and say, do you remember this? Oh, and by the way, I plan on publishing this. And... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I had that experience um where when the book came out and my family actually read it, they'd known that I was working on that story for so long, and they'd always known that I wrote the hard stories, and they'd been supportive of that. Um, But whether it was friends or family, they kind of held the book and read it, and they are like, oh, my God, how did you just write a book? I'm like, but remember when you thought I was crazy for eight years because I told you I was writing a book? (laughs) This is actually it. They actually (laughs) was writing a book. (laughs) And I think it's just hard for people to wrap their brain around. And And a similar thing that I get is, wait, how did you just write a book? But way back when, you know, I was in grad school for creative writing, they're like, is that a real degree? Is that a real program? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? And then 15 years later, I was like, actually, I was learning how to write a book. Right. It was a real program, and I didn't just write a book. I studied it, and I worked hard. Yeah. um, 
But to get back to another part of your question, I had so much fun. Um, you know, my dad and I really connect on talking about cars or the weather and, you know, other things can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so he was great, a great help and really enjoyed, I think, when I would email, like, to ask about the cars or clear up a discrepancy. And then as I was writing, unfortunately, it was a lot of fun to feel like I was working um, when I was Googling vintage car ads. and Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know. It's research. Yeah. Oh. Going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> totally. It's research. I had a, a professor in college say once that he, a writing professor, say that he, uh, you know, like getting up from your computer and walking around and going outside and smoking a cigarette and walking around the block and going to the store and getting a coffee that all counts as part of your writing yes. time. <laughs> I support this. <laughs> so I think that that's totally fair game. Um, so I imagine, you know, there's a lot of painful s- stories in here. Yeah. Um, how much of this, how much of, how much of these stories had you sort of worked through on your own and were ready to tell them? And how many did you sort of work through as you were writing them? And was that, I guess, I guess what I'm asking yeah. is, do you need... Do you feel like as a writer, do you need to understand the story before you you tell it? Or can you understand it by telling it? Does that make sense? I, I think, yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I really believe we should write towards the questions instead of towards the answer. Yeah. If you think you have the answer, and it's fine if you think you do. Let that, you know, get your butt in the chair to sit down and do the work. Um, but I think the best, most real honest, vulnerable, raw, creative nonfiction anyway, is an act of self-discovery. And your reader needs to be following that thought pattern with you on the page. Um, So, you know, you have a book that starts with um, a a very motivated kid that kind of lacks confidence and assumes everything's kind of her fault and then going through this terrible event. and, And if you follow along, I mean, I didn't really know I didn't really know I was writing a book about myself to begin with, and I definitely didn't know what what some possible takeaways or reason for telling the story would be. So I went into it very blindly, like, I've tried to write around this, I would love to write anything else, but it was this huge thing in my path, I had to go through it in order to get to other stuff, so I knew I had to write it. Uh, but I felt very guilty for even writing it. I'm like, who is, you know, no one wanted to talk to me about this in real life. People sure as hell won't want to read like such a dark, heavy book. But what I found as I wrote it, um, you know, the last things to come into place were like, oh, wait, like my family has a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You can have a really mm-hmm. dark, heavy book um, and you can still have humor. You can have lightness. You can have all these different things. So I had to really go kind of down into that tunnel. And a lot of the really dark, traumatic stuff came out very vividly early on. And then it was more about shaping the narrative and making it a complete narrative and kind of accepting and owning that, oh, yeah, you duped yourself. You wrote a book about yourself as well. Right. Well, and I think that the one of the things, again, the, the, the car theme gives it a certain amount of levity. Yeah. That, that it, it never feels... It never feels too like heavy-handed or too much because we're right. always going back. I mean, that the chapter titles are the names of cars that mm-hmm. you owned at certain times. Yeah, um, and there's something just really fun. Yeah, about- it's that. Uh, it's how everybody does that. It's always a when you're telling stories. It's always a moment of a, oh yeah, we had that. Uh, we had the Chevy Nova then. Yes, and it's and it's like it's such a great 
like uh, it's so important, right? Yeah. It's a really expensive thing that you have, and you have to have it, and it's always there. Spend a lot of time in it. Yeah, yeah fam- like together as yeah. a family. Together. Yeah, and you you need it. Like mm-hmm. you depend on it, and every one of those, uh, every one of the problems that comes along with ownership is like a story in itself. So it's yes. like a, like I think of everything based on which van I owned, which Volkswagen I owned, or which other car I owned. Yeah. And it's constantly like a, I'll, I'll, I move things into where it, there's moments in the book where you, you're not owning the car that you want to own. And there's a, there's a definite like, oh, and all the bad stuff happened while I owned that horrible car. There's, I mean, in a very like definite, in a very like light way, but it's that thing where I'm, I'm never excited about my car. I'm never excited about life unless I have, oh, I have the van finally. Okay. I got another van. Everything's going to be great. Yes. Everything's going to be great from now on. I don't have that Jeep anymore. Great. You were yeah. really sad when you got rid of that truck. Yeah. It hurt you a little that, bit. That, my little Japanese truck was the greatest thing in the world for me because of dependability. Yes. And this thing that, wow, it starts every time. And when there's a problem, it still keeps going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and it's so easy to fix. Oh, this is this is the way I want my friends to be. Oh. <laughs> oh. Wow. I mean, because the car is like, yeah. Like I spend a lot of time alone in a car, yes. so I'm like, oh, it just always starts. Oh, it's always just right out there. And when I park it in a different spot and I look out the window, I'm like, what? Oh, oh, nope, it's just in a different spot. I think <laughs> that I knew I was. You were in my sphere a little bit when you first got that car, the truck. Uh-huh. And then I heard secondhand. I don't even know how it came up that you had recently sold it, and I thought, oh, yeah. I hope Travis is okay. Yeah. <laughs> I hope oh my he's, gosh, that's so I, funny. I hope he's okay, too. <laughs> that's so he funny. is okay. He drives a spaceship now. It's good. Yeah. But, but, but and, and I have to remember to start the van every week. Yes, I'm doing the same with my old van in the driveway. Yep. It's got to be ready. Yes. Got to be ready. Got to pull the battery. As soon as it gets too cold, it'll be okay. You know, it's funny how many people... Um, you ever think about your cars this way, James? <laughs> I, I'm re- if I, By the look, look, I if I read half of your book, I would relate to this not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I get from a lot of readers. A lot of readers will come up and, and say to me that the, the qualifier at the beginning is, oh, I don't care a lick about cars, but... And then they'll start to tell me like a story about a car of their youth. I'm like, it doesn't mean you have to be an expert. Right. If your car breaks, I yeah. certainly am not the one to fix it. But almost everybody, even if they say I'm not a car person, they're like, oh, but this did happen once in my 1965 Ranchero that was passed down to me from my father. Or, yes. You know. No, yeah. it's it's really important. It's it's strangely important how just like how uh, dedicated we are to a thing yep. that you have to have. You have to, like you need it. But like I hate it. If I didn't have to own it, I wouldn't own it. I yeah. wouldn't deal with it. I wouldn't. I, my car is in the mechanic right now Ugh. because I'm like, oh, just, just want it to be. But I, I need you. It's the worst type of companion. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so when did the book come out? It came out at the end of July this year. Yes. So it's still, it's still pretty fresh. I guess so. Yeah. It feels like a miniature lifetime to me, but I guess it's still kind of a baby. Yeah. Do you? I mean. Because, gosh, how, how, you said what, you wrote it for eight years, basically? Yeah. I mean, Which, I wasn't always writing it full-time. There were maybe a couple years sure. in there where I was writing it full-time, and once you even sell the book, it's like another couple years um, before oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. No kidding. So I'd sold it in August of 2016, and then they were like, be ready to revise it, and I saw their edits come in. I'm like, oh, that's nothing compared to the work I've done. Yeah. And then the last year... Um, it's out of your hands, and you're not working on it at all. For a whole um, year? Yeah, they're just, you know, it's going to um, 
advanced copies and um, final copy edits that, you know, I wasn't really a part of. And um, then it's just all, I don't know, marketing and weird stuff that they're doing their businessy end of it. You're kind of done. But you sold a book. Yeah. I mean, the number of people in Missoula who are right today trying to sell a book is significant. Yeah. It is a huge, monumental deal. Yeah. Congratulations, Thank first you. of all. Yeah. Can you can you tell us what it was like? I mean, did you? I don't know. Did I just personally, I feel like I would lose my mind. It's just so. It's just so cool. That's a and great reality so check. And yeah. this is like, also, I'm coming from the perspective that I think writing a book is about the hardest thing there is. Yeah. I mean, not only in in the amount of commitment and just sitting in front of a screen. But the worst part is that you finish and then you basically have to start over and redo mm-hmm. it oh, and mm-hmm. maybe redo it again mm-hmm. and then redo it again. And then you sell it and they tell you to redo it again. Yeah. Um, and it's just like small jab after small yeah. jab. Yeah. You know, because especially when it's a memoir, I mean, fi- even fiction is a piece of you, but this is literally your story. Yeah. And my dead brother's story. And your dead brother's story. So there's story. a real, you know, pressure of... Um, Oh, you better get that right. Yeah. I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps now though, thinking about what it must have felt like to get the email or like phone call or whatever it was. Yeah. I wish it was that kind of moment. (laughs) (laughs) What what was it actually? Tell us what it's actually like. You know, I had had the um uh fortune slash misfortune of um having um an an ex husband who had reached um, some some pretty great literary success, and so it was fortunate in that, and not just him, but several um, several of our friends from our married life in Texas um, were people who went on to publish uh, novels that were a big deal yeah. and, and earned a lot of money. So these people were were great people. I could ask for like, oh, how do you get an agent? Like, what is the path? And I might not have known that. And um, they were all able to say, like, oh, here are some names of agents, and they're good for these different things, and here's how you query, and here's what that process is like. And so um, that really got me through the process. But then, even though I didn't feel that I had those expectations, they were people who, when their books went up for sale, it's like, oh, what's a bidding war? That sounds nice. (laughs) (laughs) Bidding war. And I think it did skew my perspective of how rare those situations are. That's not how things normally go. And um, since then, since my book sold and I've been more active in certain writing groups, I've been able to see like, oh my gosh, there are people who query 40 different agents and they don't even make it past that stage. Um, So I was grateful that I wrote the entire manuscript on my own before and then revised it uh, probably three times before even finding an agent and then I just didn't know things that I should celebrate like I went out to eight agents and and my top eight picks you know of in the in the country and two people were vying to represent me I didn't know that this is something most people do happy dances about I was like I guess two out of eight isn't bad (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then when I it finally sold um, it is a very, in hindsight, I realize uh, what a special story it is, and it really, um, uh, it really gives me hope for the publishing industry, which is kind of stressed and weird as an industry in yeah. general. But it, it sold to a big five publisher, 
which should mean that I got a lot of money, but it, that's not how it worked out. And only one publisher bid on it. There was no bidding war at all. So I could have either let it go to that publisher or done a second round and included some small presses, which are the presses that publish some of my favorite books. And the money probably wouldn't have been much different. Um, but for a book like this that's written about low-income people in the Midwest and kind of marginal characters by an author who they've never heard of um, and has no platform and no celebrity yeah. for, for it to sell just because it was a heartfelt, beautiful little book is very uncommon. So I'm yeah. really proud of that. You should be. I mean, it's really, I, to be honest with you, and this is going to sound so shitty and I do not mean it in a shitty way at all, but when I got it, I was expecting it to be self-published. Right. You know, yeah. just and, and again, lots of amazing books are self-published because of just how ridiculous the publishing industry yes. is. Um, the, probably the best books in the world don't get published, yeah. <laughs> really, you know, in some ways. Um, but when I saw that, I just thought, fuck, that is so cool. Yeah. You just don't, you just don't, in a town with so many writers, you just don't hear those stories very often. No. So it's so nice. And it is, it gives you hope. It makes you feel like, oh, there is a way to get your manuscript on the desk yes. of somebody who matters. And to step on a soapbox for a minute, uh, the reason it got taken is is because the right editor found it, and she's from rural Oregon, and she's like, we don't hear enough stories from between the coasts. Uh, and the way you keep making sure that editors like her at big publishers or any publisher can convince their house to go behind to support books like that is by buying them. Um, or requesting them at your library, yeah. you know, so when there's an author whose work you love, I mean, if they're already on the bestseller list, they're probably doing fine. Right. Um, but to support those books in whatever way you can, because I saw what she went through, and I think it took her a week or two of um, trying to convince her publisher, like, oh, no, this is worth the gamble. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have lots more questions about the publishing. Is that so boring for you to talk no, about? No, it's what I'm writing about right now anyway. Oh, so. well, that yeah. is a question I have for you. But yeah. but before we get there, I want to ask you about, there are these, so again, the, the Driven is about, it's it's your story, um, but it's all also very much about, it, the story never gets far away from your brother. Right. Um, and between chapters are these little vignettes mm -hmm. that are... I don't know if imagining is the right word, but they're scenes of your brother in his last day or yeah. two. Um, and he, just so everyone knows, he was an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and uh, struggled a, a lot with that. Those moments, first of all, I started going to AA a little over a year ago. And the way you portray alcoholism is so gut-wrenchingly vivid hmm. and accurate. And if anybody has been touched by alcoholism these little again these vignettes between chapters will rip your guts out Thank i mean you. they are so spot on but i'm curious you obviously were not there right how can you talk a little bit about your process and uh, first of all imagining an extremely painful scene yeah um and just what that was like and and also just how you because i imagine some of it you had to guess yeah um, and so there is a little disclaimer on the first one. It's, it, it says something like, this is his last day, as I imagine it, based on, you know, um, I forget how it's worded, but the, the details I know and, and things people have told yeah. me. Um, two main things I want to say about that, circling back to the AA, 
both my brother and my mother, who's still alive, um, are alcoholics and, and have that addiction gene. And uh, as I was writing this, for whatever reason, it was very easy for me to be sympathetic towards my brother. My mother is you know still alive and uh, um, very severe alcoholic incredibly hard for me to have the compassion or sympathy there and she is part of the book uh anyway as I was drafting this I'd been to some Al-Anon meetings but um I I laughed this is my dark sense of humor I realized I like the open AA meetings better and I told a friend who's a recovering alcoholic that and she goes yeah well that's your rearing you like alcoholics better than you like normal people because that's how you were raised and I was like oh they are more fun Yes, better stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so to kind of um, just get compassion for and, and a, more of an education of what it might be um, to live with that monkey on your back every day. I went to a great open AA meeting many times here in town. And that was before I had any idea I'd write those italicized sections. And I guess I'm saying that because I feel like what I heard there was so... Um, kind of moving and inspiring and um, just gritty and real. I don't know if I would have written those sections yeah. if I hadn't been to those meetings. Yeah. Um, and that the decision to have the italicized sections about his last day was actually, that's the last content that was added to the book. And it was added very late. Um, I always had the trouble as far as, the narrative goes, um, it's a very ambitious memoir. I didn't mean for it to be like this, but it attempts to cover all of childhood in the first quarter. That might be the subject of an entire memoir right. if it's something like um, Liar's Club by Mary yeah. Carr. Um, so that's a lot of territory to try to cover efficiently. And so it gets a little bogged down in um, exposition. It doesn't. It, it didn't have as much momentum as the second half of the book, I think. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way to get a taste of, of my brother as an adult on the page early on. So you have that momentum of knowing that you're going yeah. someplace very different. It adds a little tension. And um, what that italicized section says about grief, I think, is that when you lose someone in a traumatic episode like that, I can't speak for everyone, but at least for me, there was a real obsession over what that exact last day was. So when I wrote that section, I wrote that all in a day. Um, and it very much felt like someone else's voice was in my head. And I knew all those details because I'd spent at least the first three years after he died really obsessing over them, yeah. wanting any detail I could, even really morbid details. And I feel like my whole family did. And that's part of grief. Like, if I can understand this, if I can get the whole picture, if I can see it all somehow... Um, it's illogical, but maybe I can control it somehow or yeah. explain it somehow. It does. I mean, the, those sections really do feel. I mean, part of it is that they're they're styled differently with the italics and stuff, but they also there's something about the tone that just feels like we are stepping away from the story for a second. Yeah. Um, and that it, it it feels like a, a third person is is telling the story. Um, did you feel like I know I sort of asked you this question sloppily earlier. Um. Did you did did writing this and maybe specifically writing that section? Did you feel like you came to terms with his death in a different way, or had that happened uh, before? I feel like the act of writing the whole book really, yeah. um, because the midsection, which you might just be 
yes. kind of coming up on really reckons with um, it, it kind of slows down. And if you've got all childhood in the first quarter, the, the midsection is really the span of a few days that, that it covers um, around the, the actual trauma. And I, I feel like the section I wrote that where I reckoned the most is this, um, I think it's called, it used to be one of those shorts and it was called body. I think now it's called SUV, but it's when I actually uh, go to a funeral home and say, you know, view my brother's body. That was kind of like the traumatic emotional pinnacle for me. And it is kind of smack dab in the middle of the book. And I think writing moments like that, um, there's this idea in therapy that by revisiting traumatic memories in little increments, you know, bit by bit, we sort of desensitize ourselves to them. And I feel like writing a book for eight years about my brother's suicide made it something that uh, doesn't have power over me in in a frightening negative way um, in the way that it used to before this. So the the writing it was um, working through it and also making the book that I wish that I'd had when my brother died. Do you... um because you, you lived through the trauma and the grief, and then years and years later, you wrote a book about it. What is, uh, what is the response from you of like receiving, you're, I would assume you're receiving a second set of like doe eyes uh, from people who now are experiencing what you already went through. So you went yeah. through the grief, yeah. but now people are now experiencing it. Oh, and yeah. looking to you of like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. What is that like in the last year of, of revisiting... Uh, the doe eyes. We call them the doe eyes in our house, right? Because there's uh, Bridges' mom died, and mm-hmm. will there will be moments where I'll, you'll see somebody across the room that's walking towards you, and you go, oh, "Here come the doe eyes." I don't want to do the doe eyes right now because I'm not living it right now. They just found out. Yes. And uh, so I'm curious with that. What what has that been like reliving? Essentially, like it ha- for these people, it happened yesterday. Exactly. I, I think you sum it up really well. Um, I forget who it was. It was another writer told me something very intelligent, you know, when someone else can see what's coming for you, but you've not been through it, so you don't know. Um, He he said to me in the six months leading up to the book coming out, um, what you're about to do with the book coming out, you should celebrate, you should feel good, you should revel in all that, but what you're about to do is an act of service for your readers. And uh, I definitely felt that, you know, here I'd, I'd be at readings and I'd feel like celebrating. There's all these old friends. And, <laughs> exactly. and it was this real, like, um, sense of celebration. It was grief in one hand and celebration in the other. And, you know, there were moments that were so fulfilling. I'd been working, I'm in my 40s, and I'd been working towards having a book in hand that I made my whole life. And then um, just the satisfaction of that. And then you know, having someone come up and, and give me the doe eyes yeah, and so kind sorry. of, I'm like, I, I'm fine. Yeah, it's I'm been fine. a long time and <laughs> I'm sorry too. And that's why I had to write a book about it. Um, so I just, you know, always, you know, gratitude and kind of the message of, um, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm just, I'm so honored if something that I wrote on the page, uh, if you connected with it and yeah. if it resonated with you. That's so interesting. You handled that question really well. I imagine that that is extremely irritating. I have not, I had not, not thought of that. And so, part of it. So how are you doing? Yeah. Like that's oh, a Q and A question. So how are you doing now? 
Oh, well, I, I managed to get it down on paper. Oh, so, I'm I don't s- know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened. Oh, I wish I could have been there for you then. Well, it's... Wait... It's okay. I did get, you know, from people that I knew then, I, I had some people, um, grad school friends say, I wish I would have known what you were going through. And I was like, how would you? You know, I was yeah. just like doing Jägermeister, Jägermeister shots at the end of the bar looking sullen and like distant. Like yeah. I didn't have the language for it. Yeah. How would you know? Right. Um, my gosh, I'm not... The last thing this book is is finger pointing someone oh, for yeah. not emotionally supporting well, me, but people sometimes put that on themselves. Yes. And there's none of that in there. And yeah. at no time do you blame anybody right. for anything, which is amazing because that's like a very conscious. I mean, it's got to be a very conscious decision to say this is I am. I'm taking responsibility for everything that I did and yes. what I can do, and that is like that's so great. Which I, is, I mean, I think is like. Uh, it's got to be the most important thing if you're writing about yourself is a willingness to ma- acknowledge that you also could be a little turd and you had your yep. own shit. And, 100%. Because, man, if it is just the finger pointing to other people, yeah. nope. who's interested? You don't even want that person as a friend. You make yourself not credible, and it's not, it, it's the most boring thing to um, read on the page. It also, you know, these people in life who the problem with them is always someone else. Yeah. And you're like, actually, I think you need rehab or therapy or something. Yeah. Fool me ever, once, fool me twice. The third time, um, you know, this is all someone times. else's yeah, if fault. Ever, if I no if, longer have your back. Yeah. If everyone around you is saying yes and you're the only one saying no, <laughs> you're, you might be wrong. You might yes. be wrong. It's okay. Just consider it. Um, but I do believe that the only creative nonfiction I'm interested in uh, helping other people write or writing myself or reading um, and this might be cribbed from Mary Carr. I can't remember who put it this way, but if the narrator's feet aren't held to the fire uh, more than anyone else, then what are you really writing about? Yeah. Oh, sad. you are so you are so self-deprecating the whole entire book. Like you are you you become become a very lovable character because it's you you exemplify everybody's faults. Not right. saying in real right. life. <laughs> well, yeah, you, I mean, oh, of you, course you, not. you do. You point out you point out along the way. Uh, like I have to with my own stories, I have to point out, oh, I was the asshole. Right. Like I was, I was wrong, but it worked out for me. But I was wrong, and I didn't deserve the, it working out. Oh, down to even. I mean, you describe. <laughs> I love you describe your ambition, which is like the American ideal for characteristics. Mm-hmm. You describe your ambition as creepy. <laughs> yeah. I look back though, and even in writing it, I was yes. like. I think it was a little, you know, yeah. repellent, oh, especially no. in the Midwestern Indiana family. Yes. And so I grew up self-conscious about it. It's like if you have an extra finger and nobody else does, you learn early on to hide that. Yeah, totally. That's and so funny. My ambition was like that, but it's, you know, then you get older and you're like, oh, the, the things that make us different are the things that make us us. And yeah. you better come to terms with that and embrace it sooner or later. Did anybody in your life uh, respond poorly? to the book is there any good question um well two things to say about that um no in general no not that i'm thinking of and i am you know how criticism is like you'll remember that bad review and and forget the so i think i would remember that i did get a message it was you know hilarious having all these facebook requests and and um one of them I would just kind of look and see if we had any mutual friends and then accept the request and a message would usually follow. And one was from a woman who was friends with Betty, 
my grandmother that, um, you know, they called mother to her face. She's the one who drove the Buick um, through the front of the Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> which I think is great. I mean, what better story could right. you have? Um, we, I grew up in a family of storytellers, and we loved Betty stories. And I get this message, and she's like, you know, here's my name. I live in Florida. I was friends with your grandma. I read your book, and your grandma would be very proud of you. And I'm very proud of you, but um, after reading your book, I worry that you think your grandmother didn't love you very much. Oh, and I was gosh. like, oh no, it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a book about, um, it wasn't the book love about... between Betty and me. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, what a grandmother thing to yeah, say. Yeah, she was like standing in for my grandmother's place. My grandmother had just died maybe a year or so before the book came out and I hadn't seen her in years. And I was like, oh no, no, I believe me, I relish every Betty story. And, um, I didn't write this book so funny. looking for people to come say they're sorry. No, no, but it was very sweet. She yeah. was kind of, I think wanted two things for me to understand that and to make sure that I understood my grandmother as a larger character. Yeah. And it, you know, there's, it's not room to make everybody three dimensional on the page or it would be, um, a thousand page memoir. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you, this is now you're, you're moving on. Mm-hmm. What what happens next for you? What are you working on? Good question. <laughs> I wish that I was like on all the best books of 2018 lists and it was winning awards and I was raking in cash. Yeah, but you need that Oprah book club stamp. That's right. <laughs> I told a friend this. She's actually in the book briefly. Her name is Alexa and... Um, she makes artisan marshmallows in our hometown of Columbus, Indiana, and still lives there. And when I was visiting her and um, <laughs> this oh. summer, and on top of it, she's, um, uh, she's in a same-sex marriage, oh and uh, they were single-handedly responsible for getting, I think it was global news coverage of their Gay Pride Festival in Columbus, Indiana, by pitching it as... Gay Pride Festival in Mike Pence's hometown. Nice. Oh, yeah. Can we get her on the phone? Oh, she's amazing. Get her Wait on the a phone second. Right now. She was not on a TV show, was she? Yes, she was on The Prophet. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sam and Alexa. She's in your book? She's the one who gets in the, the when I'm shopping for my new car, she gets in the... Uh, she gets in a Toyota with me that has like fleshy pink velour interior, yes. and she goes, hmm... It says something like "looks like a pink taco," and by "pink taco," I yes, meant yes. she. Vol- I knew Volva. she meant Volvo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wait a sec. <laughs> Hold the fucking phone, though. I know. I'm sure you know what's coming. Have you seen the episode? Yes. It's, it's the only episode I've seen of that show. My mom had to tell me because I don't have cable, so I bought it, and I was like, "Oh dear God, Alexa!" I'm... She looks terrible. <laughs> she looks like a crazy person. Well, there's Alexa who owns the business, and then her wife Sam was the one who, you know, came okay, off as being what... a little severe. Whose dad made the mustard? Well, wasn't that in that episode? So that's Max, and actually, my first job in here at the Buffy—that's oh. the family that owned Saps Donut Mill and the Buffeteria where I worked. Um, they're the Lemleys. This is fucking blowing my mind. So, so, so I love The Prophet. Mm-hmm. It's like my favorite show oh, that's ever. That's hilarious. It's so good. Marcus is my man. Uh, I cannot believe that was, so that was for Prophet buffs like me, uh-huh. that episode was kind of a big deal because, because it was terrible. Prophet buffs. And this sucks. And this totally sucks. Prophet yeah. heads. But because after, so for, to catch people up, 
The Prophet is a fucking stupid show where a rich guy goes into struggling businesses and basically buys them from people and makes everybody rich. Um, and these people just were, they were doing things a certain way. I don't really remember. They're doing things a certain way. They didn't really want to change. They didn't love all his ideas. And, yes. his, and his ideas are always heavy handed. And it's like, hey, you want to be super obscenely rich? Here's how you do it. And yeah. it involves giving me half your business. Yeah. So, like, it's fraught. The The model is fraught, for sure. Yeah. Um, but Alexa's partner came off very, uh, I don't know. Controlling. Controlling, severe. unappreciative, yeah. severe. Um, and the the episode it was the rare episode that ended in basically everybody being like, fuck you. The deal's off. We're yeah. not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was so sad because the fallout of it, you know, immediately when you watch that, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm looking up this business. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all their online shit was, had just been inundated with, like, hate messages oh, yeah, I bet. from fans of the show. So is, are they still making marshmallows? I have a great update. Okay, good. Yes. Um, oh, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a picture of their rad taco truck on my Instagram that I'll share with you guys. But they are, um, they just finished, they just, just did their last batch of artisan marshmallows. So you can purchase the last ones they'll make right now they until they good. run out. And they are um, turning to two things. They have a keto diet a cookbook coming out. Hell yeah. Yes. And yes. Um, they are uh, turning into a distillery. Oh. Okay. All right. So they're fine. Go. They're fine. So they're going to be just fine. If I can bring it back, because I think now you'll really appreciate this on at least a few levels. Um, the summer when I was in town with the book, as far as um, the Oprah stamp goes, this is what made me think of Alexa. It was one of Alexa's great jokes. I went to meet with them out at that same facility you saw at the Prophet, and she was like, oh, Sam will hook you up. She's great at marketing. Come on out. We're going to help you get word of your book out there, which was incredibly generous, and they're very good at that. And I just said, and it's still the story of the book, I was like, you know, it just never got any national media, you know, didn't end up on national NPR, and Oprah was not photographed reading it on the beach and Alexa looks at me and she goes I know what you need and I was like yeah she goes you need Fopra (laughs) (laughs) so the idea being we find a fake Oprah and have her picture taken on the beach reading driven and leak it to the media and I mean not for real but it was hilarious I'm like only Alexa would think of Fopra that's beautiful (laughs) could still happen it should still happen yeah Oh, that's great. I love that idea. <laughs> that's too fucking funny. That's amazing. Best. Okay. Okay, so 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 okay, so we were asking them, what are you working on? What's what's next? Yeah. Um I'm back to doing the full time creative Missoula hustle. Yes. And um writing wise, um I've got I guess I have three books on my hand, but if my answer to this book maybe not um being a bestseller, uh Maybe my answer is a little illogical just to go completely left turn. I, I'm finishing the manuscript of a very short, weird book. Um, and it is probably the least marketable uh, response I could have to this book. But Perfect. it's been great to make and follow the left turns. And if you're, I mean, it, at the end of the day, if you're not creatively pursuing um, whatever catches you by the tail, um, then I don't know. I'd. I, I doubt your your intentions. Um, so I have that. Yeah. Uh, I have that weird little book that um, I'm just finishing up a manuscript of. It's called Debut, and it's about um, 
I spent the entire month of September in Brooklyn and New York City on a writing residency. And during that month, I realized my book wasn't going to be a bestseller. So it examines, it, it's deeply rooted in it, my month in the city and experiencing that city as an outsider. And also this idea of debut and delayed success and, and wild successes. And, you know, Harper Lee publishes To Kill a Mockingbird and then never writes another book again. That's great success, but it's not all a blessing either. Yeah. So uh, it's creative nonfiction and, and really short, almost poetry, creative nonfiction hybrid book, and I'm finishing what I thought it would be an essay. It's a book. Um, and then I have a rough draft of a novel that I'm going to dive back into that's been great fun, and that's what I wrote kind of in that year when Driven was out of my hands. Oh, okay, awesome. Um, and that's what I thought I'd be writing in New York City, but something else caught my attention. Is there, do you find that there's, um, is there like a new anxiety about publishing now that you have had? You've had this pub- book published. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, you have blurbs from yeah. like big time yeah. authors and, and outlets. Um, and now, I don't know. Now it's it's like, is, is there a feeling? What is the feeling like? I'll, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to put words to your mouth. But I would imagine that, it, I don't know, I feel like there'd be no preparing yourself for what it's like to have your first book come out and then be looking into the future and like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it would be much more overwhelming for me creatively now if this had been um, a commercial success. Oh, because where yeah, where this leaves me now is to hell with it. I'm gonna write whatever I want. I'm still just back in Missoula doing the creative hustle. Yeah. If I can't write what I want and what calls to me without worrying about commerce. Um, then I don't really know what it's for because um, I didn't write this book worrying about it. Um, it had more success um, on many different levels, personally satisfying ones, artistically satisfying ones, and just finding a home at a reputable publisher than I expected. And uh, we can't control that stuff. Yeah. You don't know when you sit down and write a song if that's everyone's going to be singing that song or no one but you is ever going to remember yeah. that song. Yeah. So you might, as just, you might as well just make the song you want to make. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that sounds like the best attitude you could possibly have about it's a, it. It's a strangely good place to yeah. be in, but if you had told me six months from now that I would be saying this, I think I would have been terrified. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, it's going to make a badass movie someday. There's just no doubt yeah. about that. Oh. <laughs> Film rights for sale. Yeah. Yes. Option this book. Option this book. That's so awesome. Um, well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing a little bit more about the book. Uh, the book is driven. Uh, I assume you can pick it up probably anywhere in Missoula. They I saw it at Costco the other day. They no, had, you didn't. Literally, and bought it. It's at Costco? Costco? They had large stacks at Costco, but I will say Fact and Fiction also has yes, signed copies. Yeah, sorry, sorry, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. But sorry, yeah, it is, well, it is some weird hallmark of success when people first uh, oh, that's a, that's showed totally. me the book at Costco. I was like, mainstream. Do they come, yeah. in, do they come in, in like bundles of six books? <laughs> <laughs> I did buy two copies at Costco, two copies at Fact and Fiction. That was awesome. Because I needed them. Oh, wow. Aww. To hand to people. Aww. Well, because people don't read anymore. And I'm, I don't. say that from somebody who doesn't really read and i was like oh i just gotta if i could just hand this to somebody even though it's got the wrong van on the cover i'm gonna hand this to somebody <laughs> i'm just joking that was a, that was a, that was my first reaction when oh, i saw it there's a whole story yeah I there's know, a whole I, story there when i saw it i was like oh they fucked her they didn't put a van again on the front i mean what is did, this thing they didn't put, well uh, a t1 yeah it's a different it's not 
So the, the short version no, of sorry, that. <laughs> this matters. This matters. I know we're wrapping up, but the short version of that is thank you because um, <laughs> they showed me my cover and they're like, every you know, no pressure, but everyone here thinks it's so great. Even the president of the whole company said it's so great. And we never have a unanimously positive response to a cover, but this is it, but no pressure. And I was like, I think it's so great too. Just one little thing. Could you fix it? And I could hear the laughter all the way from New York City. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> this is not this that's is great. this is from the sixties and seventies. This is not a this is not what it is. But no. Uh, no, yeah. that was I remember when when you posted that on Facebook, aside from this one little problem with the cover, I was like, Oh, yeah. Yep. The type you of van. Know. This is the type of van. Because this isn't this isn't the van. No, but yeah, yep. I love that. Well, all right, one more time. The book is driven. She's Melissa Stevenson. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. This has been Jamie and Travis. Present. Present.